Uh, as Tim said, my name is Luke. If I haven't yet met you, it's a privilege to, uh, to be sharing a message with you today. And I'm sharing something that is burning in my heart. And if I'm honest with you, I've, I've, put the, I've taken the gloves off a little bit today. I feel like I want to go for the jugular a little bit, okay? So I hope you got your coffee and I hope you've taken your vitamins. I'm setting my stopwatch because I'm probably going to be five minutes longer than normal. Okay. Okay, take a deep breath, prepare yourself. Five minutes, five minutes. I've set my stopwatch because I'm going to be keeping on it. But I'm also going to go a little bit quick at times as well, just to keep us on the clock. Does that, is, that, is that okay with everybody? Dirk in the back there, is that okay? Awesome. Okay. So last week we had Greg Heasley with us from Covenant Grace Church in Tabecha. And he spoke from 1 Corinthians 6 and 7 about a theology of the body. If you missed it, please watch it on YouTube. Watch it on August weekend. Don't miss it. It's where we as a community uh, get it, part of where we derive our sexual ethic from as well. And so please take a look at that message. It's brilliant and foundational as well. This week, we are in week four of our This Is Us series. I'm sorry, guys, online, I'm going to disappear for 30 seconds. I will be back right now. Because over here, you can see all of our weeks. We, we launched by speaking about gospel defined. And then we looked at being a people of God's presence. We looked at spiritual formation. In two weeks' time, Pete's going to be speaking about the mission of God, how we love like Jesus and live like Jesus. Today, I want to speak to how community is where all of these things are. Community is where we're formed, spiritual and spiritual formation. Community is where we do mission in community as well. Community is part of all of these things. And, um, and I want to also say by way of introduction, I've drawn heavily in kind of thinking by, uh, from a book called Kingdom Values by John Tyson and Susie Silk. They are outstanding thinkers and communicators, and I have loved reading the chapter that they've written in their book Kingdom Values on community. Let me start by um, taking off the gloves, as I said. Let's start by looking at community in the modern world, community in the modern world, before we get to a biblical vision of community, right? But last thing by way of introduction, this is us, it's not just telling you about who we are, but we're talking about who we are in contrast to the world in which we live. Okay, so, so that's why we're trying to distinguish ourselves uh, as well as a church and as a community. Here we go. The 20th century, David Jansen says, the 20th century will be remembered as an age of wondrous creativity when we voluntarily shattered our lives into distant and dissonant fragments. Our industries learned how to assemble atomic bombs, airplanes, iPads, and the genetic codes of life itself in the same era that our society disassembled the ancient overlap of family, food, faith, and the field of work. They reached for the stars as they withered at their roots, inhabited space, and yet lost any sense of place. Two weeks ago, we spoke about spiritual formation. We looked at how our culture exalts individual freedom, esteems individual freedom as the kind of highest um, uh, worldview that we live in. We live under more than any generation before us. We've exalted individual freedom and the belief in self-sufficiency. I, I want to I want to explore this a little bit for, further by talking about the difference between our move as a society from a commitment-based society or commitment-based community into a preference based society or preference-based community. So let's unpack this a little bit. Remember, we're laying the way before we get to a biblical, biblical vision of committed community. Uh, you, from birth, you and I have been groomed to think a particular way. 
dream of doing anything you want to want to be be anything you want to be our age we grew up with plenty many of us and so we were taught in life to find your unique passion be true to yourselves and live live the best life you can live pursuing happiness for yourself uh, anything that restricts us from being what we want to be and doing what we want to do is viewed as oppressive and should be rejected evil, uh, as evil outright, right? Anything that gets in the way of my freedom, my desire, my passion, my right to be me, whatever I decide that me is, is seen as an enemy. And underpinning it all is this, is this kind of view of self-sufficiency that believes that everything that I need to be happy is within me. And that, that if I can just remove all the limitations from me, that, that all the constraints that is on me, then I will be free, and when I am free, then I will be happy. So how does this impact on our faith as Christians? How does this impact on church life? Well, it impacts our worldview uh, on Christianity as well. It impacts on our Christian worldview as well. Because the Scriptures teach ethics, how I should live, how I shouldn't live, we can start to view the Scriptures as oppressive. And many in our culture do. We start to see the, the riverbanks of ethical um, life that Christ calls us to as inhibiting my personal individual freedom. Because, because, yes, there's times when you can't follow Jesus and just do what we want to do. And so some reject the Bible outright. Others just parts of the Bible and therefore start to pick and choose bits and pieces of the Bible that fit with my own individual worldview and preference. And so we end up building a faith and followership of Christ that is based not on the Scriptures but based on our preference. And we end up with a preference-based faith. And that, that translates into how we obviously do church. Because obviously if we engage in Christ, with Christ on the basis of our preferences, we begin to engage with church on the basis of our preferences. And commitment to church life, we're speaking about community, commitment to church life becomes a preference-based commitment. In fact, commitment becomes viewed as a form of restriction on my life. Right? Are you tracking with me? In fact, because, because I can't do what I want to do in the moment if I'm committed to something, I'm tied down to something, they become opposites, right? If I want to just go away every weekend, if I want to surf when the waves are good, heck, if I just want to sleep in every week, I can't do that if I'm committed and locked into something else. If that's my preference, then, then, I, then I've got a, a struggle, I've got a tension, these two opposing things. It could, it might be, I mean, it could be a, a preference for a particular preacher or a particular worship leader. Obviously, no one in this crowd feels that. That way but other people out there you know we start to end up with a preference-based commitment to church which is centered around my own individual personal freedom and my own likes and desires and wants now don't get me wrong we live in a time in history especially recent history as well that shows countless examples where unjust laws have caused horrific pain and oppression to many people and those are properly evil and they should be corrected don't get me wrong but I'm just saying in reacting to this, is it possible that we've overreacted to the ills of the past? And in doing so, we're creating tremendous pain in the present. We're discovering now just how painfully, depressingly so it is to, to have unmatched freedom, to do what we like, when we like, how we like. I mean, you're even tempted, if you're bored in the sermon now, to pick up your cell phone and just escape into a world. Because, you know, you can. And why not? We've lost our meaning with all of this freedom that we've gained. 
And so people today are more lonely than have ever been before. I heard in the UK that they have literally commissioned a minister of loneliness because of how prevalent loneliness is. We're more lonely than ever. We're more empty than ever before, despite our unmatched freedoms. Okay, we've looked at modern society. The second thing I want to look at now as we start to build this now is how are we as Christ followers different? How is this different than a biblical vision of community? What does it look like? And, and really, how are we as Common Ground South Penn different in this world? Whilst it's true that God saves individuals and it's true that your faith is personal, your faith is not private. God doesn't just save us into individuality with Him. He puts us into a faith community. In Acts chapter 2, when believers came to faith, it doesn't say they were saved. It actually says they were added to the body. There's no birth without family in the kingdom of God. You are birthed into a family. The plan and purpose has always been to create a people. God has always been after forming a people that he is with, not just persons. Peter wrote about this to the early church. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 8 to 10. Hear this written to you, Common Ground South Penn. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, once you were scattered all over. Heck, two years ago, or a little while ago, you were scattered all over in COVID. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We are called to be a people. God has always and will always be building a people. Once we were not to people. Now we are the people of God. I want to just grab my communion crackers if I can. Um, won't, you, won't you take these and just hang on to them while we're talking, please? Just, you can hold them in your hand if you like. But this is symbolic of the community in which we're in. I'll tell you why at the end of the meeting. Once you were not a people, now you are the people of God. The language is intentionally plural of this passage. It's chosen people, not chosen persons. It's royal priesthood, not priests. It's holy nation, not holy uh, individuals. Whilst you can be a priest on your own and you can be holy on your own, you cannot be a priesthood on your own. You cannot be a nation on your own. It is, it is, it is to, be, to be a people is to be cemented into a community. God has always been building a people. We're building towards our big idea. This has always been through throughout the whole of, really, all of, all of the scriptures. Right from the beginning, we, we did Exodus this year. We journeyed through the book of Exodus, and we saw how God rescued his people from slavery. Leviticus chapter 26, verse 11 to 13 says this, I will make my dwelling among you. God says, you people who were in slavery or in bondage, I'm going to free you, give you a home, and I will come and dwell amongst you. And my soul shall not abhor you, and I will walk among you, and will be your God, and you will be my people. God has been building a people right from Exodus, right through the people of Israel, right through Christ, right through we've read in 1 Peter 2, the early church, and actually to the end of the ages, we read Revelation chapter 21, uh, verse, verse 3, right, right, from, right from Exodus, 
right through to the end of the age. Revelation 21, these are the final chapters of the Bible speaking about what it will be like when Christ returns and recreates the new heavens and the new earth as we will live into this future trajectory forever. He says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Do you see the pattern? God is building a people. God is building a people for himself. Now later Peter goes on and he articulates what this people look like. 1 Peter 4 verse 8 to 11. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sins, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Uh, to be part of the people of God is to, above all, keep loving one another. Be hospitable. Serve one another with the gifts that God has given you. Lay them down in service of others. Our big idea for the day is we are, as Common Ground South Penn, we are a people committed to living as God's people. We are a people committed to living as God's people. Take a second to wrap your brain around. We're committed to being a people. Our faith, our followership of Jesus means we're part of a people. We're, we're, we're embodying together what we cannot embody on our own. Jesus invites us to become um, part of a unified people, no longer divided by the world's divisionary categories like wealth, ethnicity, culture, race, etc., nor by our individual preferences. Rather, united by our love for Christ, Jesus is forming not just new humans, but a new humanity. And that's why our role as a church is so important in a society. We're being part of a new humanity. It's a new family, a new temple that is rooted and grounded in Christ. The social renewal and the peace that our world longs for is not going to be achieved through legislation and reform, the radical transformation that is necessary in our society is, is only going to come through the transforming and uniting or unifying work of Christ as we as a church embody that in this community. Does that make sense so far? When you look at the early church, you, you get a sense that the, the sense of the, the, what's the word, the the center of gravity in people's lives was toward the body, was toward the community, right? When you look at our world, our center of gravity is toward our individuality. It, it, something has changed. And, and, and to, 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 to recover that which is true of the early church is to have a center of gravity toward the, the body, toward the church, toward the people of God. Our commitment, uh, our commitment to Christ and to one another has to be higher than our commitment to our preferences. You're starting to get a bit nervous, I know, right? 
I know, I feel it. We do. This, this cuts with how we've been wired to think. It does. My skin starts to crawl a little bit as I talk about some of these things, it feels like. You know, I know you're getting nervous and I know it's intense, but stick with me because I want you to see. Let's play out how this rampant individual freedom and, and, and kind of our lives curved in on ourselves. Let's look out and play out what is it doing in our society. Let's contrast communities built around preference versus communities built around commitment, right? Communities of preference versus communities built around commitment. A.J. Swoboda wrote, I think from a Jewish perspective, wrote a book called The Subversive Sabbath. And in it, he's summarizing the thought of a guy named Zygmunt Bormann. And I've just simply swapped two words. I've swapped preference for peg, and I've swapped um, commitment for ethical in, in this quote here, okay? And just have a read here. We're contrasting communities of preference versus communities of commitment. Preference communities, Borman writes, are communities forged by disconnected spectators around a mutually loved experience, like a rock concert or a sporting match or a worship service, okay? I'm adding that in there. Their participation is a feeling or sense around something sacred, Commitment communities in stark contrast are long-term commitments that are marked by the giving up of rights and service. In short, commitment communities are built on relationships of responsibilities. These are relationships formed by commitment, love, covenant, and even a familial identity. One of the fundamental shifts in our social matrix is that our relationships are increasingly made up of peg communities or, or preference communities rather than commitment communities. Now, He's saying that instead of living as part of communities of commitment, increasingly we are living in communities based on preference. Now, what is this doing to our society is the question I want to ask here. A preference community. In other words, I exist and I participate in this community as long as it suits me, as long as my needs are being met, as long as I feel the benefits toward my life. If, if you live like this... In every sort of part of society, in every part of your life, you're less likely to make commitments, right? If you're less likely to make commitments, you're less likely to stick to them as well. And the result in society is instability. We live in a society with rampant instability because largely, literally the glue that holds people together in society has been, um, been dissolved because it's become all preference-based. It's coming undone. And so one result in society of a, of a preference-based society or commitment is instability. The second one is loneliness. Because we can't tie ourselves down to commit to relationships, we don't get any form of real depth in our relationships. We connect shallowly over tons of platforms. But true relationships take time. They take investments. They mean you, you actually work through your hurts. You show up when it doesn't suit you. And if we're honest, this happens less and less in our society. And when that happens, we become lonely. And so as society, we become more, more unstable. There's an instability in society, but there's also a loneliness in our society. And the last thing I look at here is a loss of freedom, which is ironic, right? Because the thing that we're all pursuing is our individual freedom. But actually, what, what happens is we become kind of, we're at the whim of our uncontrolled current emotions and bodily urges and momentary thinking. You become powerless to resist those things. Because without any commitments really tying us down, we're like a boat in a storm without an anchor. That is not freedom. 
You're constantly at the whim of your own current emotional state or your way of thinking or the world economic climate because you're always being shaped to respond to these things because you don't have anything that actually ties you down. And so in society, we're experiencing instability, loneliness, and a massive loss of freedom. And these things add up to insecurity in our lives and really a lack of identity because we've got no fixed points in our lives. Everything ends up being fluid and transient. And this is deeply unsettling. So how does being a people committed to living as God's people make us different? Remember our big idea. We're a people committed to living as God's people. Lewis Smedes wrote an article about 30 years ago entitled Controlling the Unpredictable, the Power of Promising. And I want to give you three excerpts from this article. And we jump straight in here. When you make a promise, you tie yourself to other persons by unseen fibers of loyalty. You agree to stick with people you are stuck with. When everything else tells them that they, cannot count, they, they, they can count on nothing, they can count on you. When they do not have the faintest notion of what, the world, um, of, of what in the world is going on around them, they will know that you are going to be there for them. You have created a small sanctuary of trust within the jungle of unpredictability. You have made a promise that you have intended to keep. When we as people commit ourselves to being part of the people of God in a world that is constantly fluid and changing and based on preferences, we create an oasis, number one, first, of stability in a world of instability. Smeets continues, whenever a mere human being takes, makes a promise, he stakes a claim on freedom. A promise is a momentous claim that the person who makes it has the power to act freely to bring order and dependability into an unpredictable future. We take it on ourselves to create a future with someone else, no matter what fate or destiny may have in store for us. Just to pause, it's why we promise on our wedding day in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, because we don't know what will come, but we commit to being there regardless. You're saying sickness doesn't have power to shape my life. Wealth doesn't have power to shape my life. None of these things do. I'm free from those things to commit to myself who I really, really am is what he's getting at here. This is almost ultimate freedom. The paradox of promising is that we freely bind ourselves to keep the promise we make. We limit our freedom so that we can be free to be there with someone in his or her future, whatever the unpredictable storms may come. The person who makes a vow, said Chesterton, makes an appointment with himself at some distant place or time. In a world of instability, in a world uh, where, where there's a loss of freedom by promising, by committing ourselves, by ah, cringe, tying ourselves down, we gain freedom because we gain the power to become the very truest versions of ourselves, breaking free from the pressures and currents of our culture. We become free. Christ followers are those who willingly give themselves to others, whether it benefits them or not. 
And here's the thing. You look at the kind of relationships that are marked by that. Mothers, you are a mother because you make a commitment to be someone in the future to your child. Spouses, you remain husbands. Husbands, you remain a husband to the extent that you hold to your commitment to be husband in the future. Think of, think of this one. And this is a massive one today. It is, it is true that true friends remain committed to each other, which means they can confront one another in areas of sin, having painful and awkward, awkward conversations that we would otherwise skirt around and avoid having because we're afraid that this fickle and fragile relationship will not be able to bear up under hard questioning. Instead, when we do this, when we become people of commitment, we create intimacy and relationship. Think of the relationships I've named. Parents, spouses, true friends. In a culture whereby increasingly there is loneliness, commitment breeds intimacy. Finally, Smees concludes, we know someone is as the same person today that he or she was yesterday by the promises that person made yesterday and keeps today. What I promise is what I am and will be to my people, the ones who belong to me and depend on me, Promise-making is the social bond that tells us who we are in our life together. Through our commitment to Christ, through our commitment to one another, we become members of one another. And in so doing, we gain an identity because you belong to something that is bigger than just you. And your life matters in that something. And when we do that, we gain stability, we gain intimacy, we gain true freedom, and with it comes meaning, and with it comes a sense of identity. Guys, we lack in our culture today meaning. We lack identity, and herein it is found. Big idea, we are a people committed to living as the people of God. Does it make sense so far? Okay, but why doesn't everybody do this then? I mean, if it makes so much sense, you're going, oh, I'm, for instability. I'm for stability, I'm for intimacy, I'm for freedom, I'm for a sense of meaning, I'm for a sense of belonging. Yes, why doesn't everybody do it then? And the answer, I think, is in part, we live with a deep fear of commitment. We live with a tremendous fear of commitment because all of us have experienced the pain of a broken commitment in our lives. People break promises. And we open ourselves up to being hurt when we rely on the promises of others. We get hurt. And then we, I mean, by the time I was 12 years old, I'd been through two divorces in my own nuclear family. Like that shapes you as a person. You get hurt. And then what you do is you try and protect yourself because you're afraid that if I commit myself to this person or this God or this people, what if they drop me? What if they break me? I've opened myself up to vulnerability now and I'm afraid that this God or this people or this person will abandon me and I will be let down. We're afraid of commitment. We have a deep-seated fear of commitment. But can you see how living in preference-based community fuels that, that, that sense of fear of commitment in society? And I think also, deep down, many of us have lost faith in our own ability to follow through on the commitments that we make. And so we both project onto others a lack of commitment, and because we're afraid of disappointing others, we just fail to commit altogether. In other words, because 50% of marriages these days end in divorce, 
increasingly there are less and less marriages. More and more people settle for living together, serial dating, hookup culture, simply because we're afraid of committing. And what's the result? It's shallow, it's empty, there's no intimacy, there's no stability, and the cycle is perpetuated. Why must I plan on staying if no one else is planning on staying and so I kind of live in a sense of well because I'm not planning on staying everyone else looking at me and then they don't plan on staying and and it's just we create this society that is just fluid and it's shaping us all of this here's the thing all of this is forming us as human beings to become less and less committed to become more and more inward focused on our own lives and we live these preference-centered lives we're becoming more curved in on ourselves I heard recently of a small group of Christ followers who just simply decided we're not coming back to church. We actually don't need the church. We're going to keep watching videos of whatever preacher we like and just doing studies of the Bible that we like because we don't actually need other people. And friends, I want to say this is rubbish. It's a lie. You do. You need other people. You need to belong, and other people need to belong to you. This is how God is building a people. C.S. Lewis summarized the risk of commitment quite poetically when he wrote this. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung out and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. We are a people committed to living as the people of God. Here, what are the stakes? What are the stakes? How are we doing? What are the stakes? Number one, and I'll go quite briefly through these now. Number one stake, I'm just going to mention two of them, the impact that we can have as a church on our community. The impact that we as a church can have on our community, we simply will not be able to be a part of the transformation of the South Peninsula if we cannot become committed to being a people. It just doesn't work out. And the second thing is this, and I hinted at it just now. Your formation as a human being. Attaining maturity in Christ is impossible outside of committed community. C.S. Lewis continues that quote, but in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless. Your heart will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The the alternative to tragedy, or at least the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside of heaven when you can uh, be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations uh, of love is hell. What am I getting at, guys? I know it sounds very strong, but I'm saying that that future world that Christ is building is a community of selfless love where where people have such a high regard for the other that they're willing to lay down lives to sacrifice and to serve and to love them. That's what heaven is like. That's why it is heaven. And if we're going to keep living lives that are just centered around me and my will and my preference, we're actually sowing away from from that kind of life, we're preparing ourselves for a world that we do not want to live in. That for us as Christ followers to say, if that's what heaven is like, then I'm going to do everything I can do now with the time that I'm allotted so as to ready myself to be the kind of person who one day when I get there belongs. 
and fits in. To that end, we need Christ's help. So, whew, I told you, huh? Four simple practices. How do we live this out as a church? How do we live this out as a church? Okay, hopefully you're, you're, you're committed now. Okay, I get it. I get it. I get it, Luke. I get it. Now what? How do we live this out in Common Ground South Penn? Any kind of meaningful, meaningful community is going to call us to four things. Number one, priority. Building God's kingdom and serving those around us must take priority over meeting our own desires and preferences. And your skin just crawled a little bit, like so did mine. It does. It, it just does. It's hard. But, but ask yourself, what kind of person do I want to be? What is it like in heaven? How do, we, how do we sow to that now? Priority. The second thing is practices. Oh, no, sorry, sorry, priority. I, I double-clicked too quickly there. Jesus' desire is that we be a unified people and that that take priority over our own desires to be right and, uh, and to be invulnerable. Can I say that again? Jesus' desire that we be a unified people take priority over our own desires to be right or invulnerable. In other words, to protect ourselves and shelter ourselves. Jesus prayed that they may be one as, as Christ and the Father are one. It, it has to be a priority. One of the things we did when COVID launched was we reached out to all the members of our church. It's one of all those who had been kind of connected to our church. I'll explain it later, Siri. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and so we reached out to everyone connected to our community. And we said, guys, the way we're going to survive and weather the storm well is we're going to be locked into life group communities. And so at that stage in our church, we were about 250 adults of 205 were in life groups, so slightly over 80%, which is phenomenal, although we, we won't rest until we're 95%. But anyway, there was a group of people in between who were missing. And so we said, so we're going to launch what we call a COVID life group, right? It's a pop-up life group that exists for COVID, right? Uh, to kind of, so that no one is lost and just left alone in this. How long do you think that life group lasted? About, about no weeks. Because those who couldn't commit to a life group before COVID weren't going to, you know when it broke down is when we actually have to commit to a time. Oh, I couldn't do this. I don't want to do that. And it just never even got off the ground. Why? Because no one could make community a priority. It has to be made a priority in our lives. The second thing, the second P, they all start with P, by the way, is practices. Prioritize worshiping together, staying, I mean, praying together, uh, studying scripture together, observing Sabbath together, sharing meals together, confessing sins together. I'm just listing all the one another's of the New Testament. Uh, the, the New Testament, if you just search one another in your Bible, just it's, it's a worthwhile exercise to do. You get love one another, bear with one another, carry one another's burdens, uh, uh, spur one another on toward love and good deeds. These are practices that show shape us as a people. Our, our togetherness is embodied by our practices. The same way in our family, our togetherness is embodied by eating meals together or doing holidays together, all those things. So certain practices as a church, what that looks like is life group. It looks like Sundays worshiping together. It looks like doing life with the people in your life group. Two more, proximity. Proximity. It's necessary that in order for us to be healthy in community, we be together. I'm sorry, you guys online. I mean, I'm just, I get for some of you, really, it's impossible. For others of you, it's time to come back and get into proximity. There's no way around it. 
1 Thessalonians 2 verse 8, Paul writes, Because we loved you much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. We share our lives together. There is no lasting community without regular proximity to one another. Last one, and your skin's going to crawl on this one. Are you ready? Permanence. Just got a shiver down my spine. Finally, a holy community must have or must be a covenantal community where we're committed to one another. At the heart of covenant is a commitment to love one another through the ups and the downs of life. To enter into permanent relationships, not based on our own temporary whims and preferences, but based on our commitment to love the other. Our love for the other has to be stronger than our preferences in our lives. Last one as we land. I'm stopping it now. A new command, Jesus speaking, John 13, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so too you must love one another. By this everyone will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. What is it that distinguishes us? What is it that proves that we are Christ's disciples? What is it that is evidence to a world that is watching who with all our hearts we want to see transformed and won for the kingdom? What is it that, that, that visibly displays that? It is our love for one another. Jesus says, a new command I give to you. There were other commands that were given. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Me and Jesus. Love your neighbor as you love yourself, 50-50, right? Love your neighbor as you love yourself. I love my neighbor the same degree that I love myself. If there's a one pizza left and I love, I love Sean as much as I love myself, what do we do? Split it down the middle, right? Equal love, 50-50. What does this love look like? To love the other as Christ loved us. Christ who had everything who lacked nothing, who had all the riches of heaven, who had all the wealth of eternity, who had perfect intimacy with God, he gave it up and he became a human being in order that you and I, who had nothing to offer, gained the whole world back. This kind of love is shown, this pizza's there, you're hungry, I'm hungry, I give you the whole thing, mate, because my life is given in service and in love to you. And when we start to live like that within the body, within our churches, within our, within our friendships, within our, our church, what kind of community is formed? It's a community that is out of this world. It does not exist. But it exists to the extent that we understand the lengths that Christ came to for us. And we're transformed by that and we embody that to one another. Okay, can I ask that uh, the grape juice uh, be brought around, please? Oh, sorry. If you're if you're online, um, perhaps you want to grab um, uh, yeah uh, some grape juice and uh, some bread at home. I am um, sorry. I realise it's about to get a little bit awkward. I I want to tell you. I want to confess something to you. I have, um, during lockdown, I didn't want to celebrate communion, um, other than with my life group. I couldn't get my head around celebrating communion scattered all over. 
You see, one of the things Jesus did on the night that Jesus was betrayed, on the night that he was, um, on the night that he, he, he was betrayed and handed over to the authorities, um, he took bread that was whole and he broke it. And he said to his disciples, take, eat, this is my body that's been broken for you. And then his body that was whole was on the cross, literally torn apart. In order that we who were scattered all over could be made whole again. And, and, and part of why I couldn't get my head around uh, celebrating communion, and, and we did it as a church because I understand scattered, alone in isolation, there was a dependence and need to draw from Christ in our individual places that I just, I absolutely see it as a compromise of grace to see that come to people. But, but, but I must confess, I couldn't do it because something in my heart was just so, so aware of, of our scatteredness. And now on the other side, as we gather back together, what we need to see is that Christ who was whole was torn apart and broken in order that you and I who were scattered, individually dispersed in our own lives, but saved and changed and made new are brought together to become one body which reflects the glory and wonder to Christ together. And that we weren't able to do for however many years of being scattered all over. And today... We get to celebrate that again. Thank you. Has everybody got with them both the elements of bread and uh, grape juice? I ask you to hold this while we we're talking because we were all scattered. Every one of us, scattered in our own individuality, in our own individual lives. But Christ brought us together, and Christ made us into a body, where every one of us, as different as we are, becomes parts and members of one another because of what Christ has done. In spite of our own lives curved in on ourselves, Jesus has transformed us by putting a new heart at the center of who we are, empowering us to love and to serve others, even above our own preferences. And so as we do this, we remember Christ's death and resurrection life to us. That on the front side, we came in scattered, and through Christ, we leave whole as one body. Can I ask us to stand as we celebrate the power of Christ to make us one? It's not quite properly depicted like this, eh? Can you imagine that one loaf, that one great, big, glorious sourdough loaf that Jesus tore apart? in order that we would make one glorious body. This grape juice symbolizes Christ's blood, that his body was literally torn apart in order that we who were scattered in our selfish ways could, could become part of something that's so beautiful, a community of people who live for God and live for others above themselves. And so let's take communion together as a family.
Jesus, left to myself, I'd simply mirror my culture. My life would become curved in on itself. Heck, if I'm honest, there's much of my life that is curved in on itself. My preferences, my desires, my wants, my dreams. But Jesus, in you, I see someone who laid it all down in order to love others with his whole life. And so Christ, as I take of this bread and as I drink of this wine, this, this grape juice, I do so mindful that I have been grafted into you. Your life is in me. That I have a new nature at the center of who I am. A new bias in my heart away from self and toward you, God. Would you continue to transform me, Jesus? Break the clutches of preference in my heart in order that I would love others, Jesus. Would you make me the kind of person for whom loving others matters more than even my own will and my own desires? Jesus, would you make us as a people, as a body, to be a place in our culture of stability, in a world of instability, a place of intimacy and belonging in a world of loneliness, Jesus. A place where we're free to be the very best human beings and not slaves to our culture and our emotions, Jesus. A community of meaning with an identity beyond ourselves, Jesus. As we remember that day that is coming when you will return and you will take us home and we will be with you and you will be our God, and we will be your people, Jesus. Amen. Amen. I'll hand over to Tim.